I want to jump right in this morning, if it's okay. We uh, turned the corner last week as we moved into chapter 5 of James. And when we did, we looked at six verses that are very sharp rebuke for the rich of the church of their day. That, that James had a, a really intense word for those that were gaining or acquiring wealth at the expense of even brothers and sisters in the church who were less educated and had less resource than themselves. And so he challenges them to think more on the faith you have in him versus the faith we place in our temporal stuff. That's a good challenge for each of us. It's a good challenge for us to, rem- to be mindful of. But this week, uh, he changes tone a bit as he moves to the next few verses. He changes tone and he changes the tension. And so even though I, I have a tendency to be pretty passionate and you may not always hear it, this is actually an encouraging word. Okay, so be encouraged as we walk through how James takes his attention from the persecutor to the persecuted. He changes his attention here in the next few verses, starting in verse 7, from convicting the oppressive rich to comforting the faithful and oppressed poor. He turns his attention to them and he begs them to trust, not rebuking, but exhorting them to trust and to persevere because the Lord sees them and he's coming for them. That with this present hope, even through really tough circumstances and through trial, they could endure to the end. So what he's asking for them to have, first point, is this, perspective in their patience. He's asking for that perspective in patience. Let me read it for you. It says, verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting For the autumn and spring rains, you too be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Now, whenever you see a word repeated in Scripture, it is with emphasis. And throughout these two verses, you have the word patience repeated, patient. And patience is rarely an attribute that we like to talk about in America or an industrialized nation because we live in a culture of immediacy. If we want it, we get it correct? Right? We have drive throughs We have like everything we want is at our fingertips. Even today on our phone, we can literally t- go through the entire Christmas list. Okay? So we don't like to discuss this. It's hard. It's difficult. Patience is literally defined as a capacity to accept, to tolerate, delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I like the way that one writer wrote it And I think it more uh, encapsulates, it captures the kind of patience that James is asking for us to have. And it says this, that patience is not the ability to wait, but rather the ability to keep a good attitude while waiting. How many of you have said, well, I'm in waiting. I'm, I'm in waiting. I've been waiting. I've been so faithful to wait. And he says, it's not about your waiting or how much you're enduring. It's about the attitude you take with, through the waiting. When is God going to hook me up? When's God going to give me mine? I've been waiting for it. Because it's not, about, it's not about you getting yours. It's about you waiting and having an attitude through it that says exactly what he says in verse 7, that the Lord sees you and he's coming. And while this is temporal and you may endure struggle while here, you need to learn to worship through it, even oppression. Worship through the oppression because here's the truth of the oppression. It is ending. 
And in the hereafter, we live a life eternal where there'll be no oppression, no pain, no suffering, no sickness. We'll be with him in his presence, just living as he intended us to be before the foundation of the world, before the brokenness of sin. Hello? And so he looks at these people and he says this, the word patience repeated here is mock through mayo, which literally means long-suffering or being long-tempered. He's trying to offer them in verse 7 a comfort with compassion. He turns to him and says, look, you have hope, but you need to take your eyes off your present circumstance and put them on the future hope you have in Jesus. That'll give you an ability to you know, take a thousand of you, look towards the end of the tunnel a little bit, and endure your present circumstances. You've got to have a heavenly perspective on the matter. Peter wrote it like this in 1 Peter 4, 7. He said, the end of all things is near. This is ending. It's going to end. So therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Now, I love what James does here because it's pretty astute. James was really smart. And he was a teacher just kind of by his very being. And so he takes these, these poor who would be far less classroom educated than himself or those who were leading them. And they were a people that were uh, experienced and trained in skilled labor. So he takes an example of something that they would be familiar with, something they're understanding of, and he uses an opportunity to ex- give this exchange to them, like to offer said perspective. So he says, to a people who are migrant workers, we talked about this last week, the day worker, the day wage, those who depended and went into the field during the day giving hours if they were selected in the marketplace just so they could feed their family at night. He said, you know very well the season of cropping and what you must endure to have a harvest come in the fall in the end. So we pray for the spring rains to soften the ground so that we can till it and put this, this, the seed in even deeper so it can take good root and hopefully during the blistering summer heat we can tend that crop and come fall have a harvest that's bountiful. But let, let me encourage you while he's saying this, he's not, did anything that he say remove the toil of the tilling of the ground? Did anything that he say remove the enduring of the blistering heat of summer just so you could tend the crop so you could have a harvest in the fall? No, nothing's removed. He's just saying, look, while the oppression may not be removed, you have to learn to worship through it. This is the perspective we're talking about. The spring rains come and they soften the ground. You still have to till the ground to plant the seed. You have to cover that seed, tend that seed. And once it starts to show vine, you have to tend that vine. You have to tend that crop, even if it means enduring the summer. These were things they were commonly used to. They expected it. They were willing to endure the struggle so they could have a bountiful harvest. They understood precisely what James was talking about. It didn't remove the toil. It just helped them understand how to worship through it. But there is something really important here to note. And that is, in the end, let's imagine that they had that spring rain that softened the ground so they could till it and that seed could go deep. And come summer, man, they're seeing a crop that's incredibly impressive, and they're tending to that, they're taking care of it. They're doing it with precision, enduring the heat, and they're doing everything they can right. Can I ask you, does any of their work keep famine from coming at the right time? Does any of their work 
stop a famine or a drought from happening that could ruin the crop and waste their harvest. No. So ultimately, he says this. The reason I need you looking at the end, the reason I need you looking to a future hope is because in the end, God is ultimately responsible for the results. It's up to him anyways. You can do everything right with your hands and feet, but I need your heart and your mind engaged because even if you operate with precision, the results are up to him. Hello? So you have to be able to look to the one who has promised that he would be faithful to the faithful. Now, what if they had to in that crop faithfully and famine comes and it steals their harvest? How many of you, I need to like engage. It's 2020, okay? How many of you saw this coming? And you go, I was doing everything I knew to do and then this. And how many of you, like them, probably turned and said, well, where's God in all of this? I mean, I was doing it. So where, what, what thanks do I get, God? This is it? Why, why do I have to suffer like this? Here's what we know the scripture is to reveal about God and what James is trying to reiterate, being the half-brother of Jesus himself. And I witnessed the life of Jesus. So everything that God does is loving. It's his very nature. Everything about God means that he can't lie to us. He's not going to be imperfect. He cannot do anything except try to encourage and lift us. Even those things that seem to harm us are for our good, the scriptures say in Romans 8. So listen to me. When the finite is trying to figure out the infinite, or when the finite tries to hold captive the infinite, guess who becomes God? We have to let God be God. We have to let the Lord be the Lord and allow him to lead us, guide his, not just as his like faithful servants or subjects, but we have to let God do what he's doing because he sees a perspective that James is trying to help us get on board with as his, his sons and daughters to a loving father who knows better what we need than we know for ourselves because the results in the end are up to him. And here's what the results look like. In Matthew 20, 16, remember, we still serve a God who lives for an upside-down kingdom. Listen, so the last will be first and the first should be last. In what arena have you experienced here on the earth where the last win? Those who let everyone go before them win. That, that, it is foreign to us in a broken world. We have a tendency, just like Autumn was praying, to know that everything comes with a catch, that we have to earn everything. And he goes, no, that's not it. The faithful to him in the end, he'll be faithful to his people. So engage your heart, engage your mind. James assures the poor here, the oppressed, that feel seemingly overlooked Listen, that feels seemingly forgotten, that the Lord sees them, and he's coming for them. In Mark 6, you have the story of where Jesus feeds the 5,000, at the end of which the disciples want to know how he did it. That was a neat trick. How'd you do that? And so he looks at the disciples, and he puts them in a boat, and he sends them out in the dark into the sea that they are very familiar with. Sea of Galilee, this, the very shores where Peter was called from to follow as a disciple. Jesus goes up to the top of the mountain to pray for 12 hours. Now, every disciple 
every fisherman who's getting into a boat at night doesn't have modern technology like we do. So they would try to stay along the shoreline and, and watch the moon reflect off that shoreline just so they didn't know where they were, so they could, like, locate themselves. They would know exactly how far they have to travel to get to their goal if they could just stay along the shoreline. In this present circumstance, Mark 6 says, they get blown offshore so much so because a hurricane hits the, the water that they're blown into the middle of the lake and they are fighting for their lives. They have no idea where they are in the midst of a crazy storm that they're certain is going to take their lives in the pitch of darkness, the darkest of night. They have absolutely no hope. And Peter, the one who knows this water best, their best chance of survival is certain they're going to die. And in Mark 6, verse 48, it says this. Then in the middle of that, it says, Jesus saw them. Now, this word saw is interpreted that he literally saw them with his naked eye. I've got to give you the, the, the background. That word, if he saw them with the size of the lake, the size of the sea, would have meant that those men were somewhere six miles offshore in the middle of the lake. In the darkest of night, in the midst of a hurricane, Jesus, who's been on top of a mountain praying for some 12 hours, it says he saw them toiling against the waves to save their lives. It, what, he saw the very sweat on their brow through the distance of that night, through the darkness of that night, and through the circumstances of that storm, he literally saw the bead of sweat roll from their brow. That's what that is saying. And so James is trying to encourage those who've been oppressed, those who are fighting for their lives, that he sees you, not like in a euphoric, like in a literal sense. And I don't know about you, but maybe today for the one who has been faithful, who's trying to walk with the Lord, but circumstances have made you go, why is all this happening to me? I don't understand what's going on. I want you to know, as much as he saw his disciples that night in the storm, he cares about the very details of your life. And in your life, if you go, I'm uncertain, I don't know what's going on, it just seems so dark. The circumstances seem insurmountable. I don't know how to get over these waves. Listen, what happened at the end of that story? Where was Jesus found? Walking towards them on that very water in the midst of that storm. And by the time he enters the boat, the waves subside. I don't know if that's encouraging for anyone today, but for me... I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that. I needed to know that he sees exactly what I'm dealing with in the darkness of night, through the distance of circumstance, and through the weight of a deathly storm. He knows every detail and the bleak circumstances of my life matter to him. In 1 Peter 5, 7, it says that he asks us to cast all our anxiety or our concern upon him because he loves us. He reminds us to worship through it even even when worshiping through it means worshiping through bitter circumstance or unjust oppression. James is telling his reader here to be exalted because in the end and in the hereafter, you'll be exalted for being humble and being faithful. There's a word he uses here. He says, stand firm in verse 8. That word is sterizo, which is derived from the root word that means to prop up. What he's saying this to them is this, to prop them up, to establish them, to strengthen them. To stand up in the middle of your 
hurt and your harm, in the middle of the weight that seems to be holding you down, those who are about to collapse under the weight of oppression, with insurmountable odds, tough circumstances, bad news, seemingly insurmountable experience. He says, those of you who are about to collapse and give up and throw in the towel, he says, prop yourself up in the, so- the sovereign Savior. Prop yourself up in the fact that he does control the results in the end. And it, they are all subject, just like the waves, to his hand. And he's subject that he cares for the needs of the faithful. So he offers this perspective of hope. While they're patiently waiting, he says, have the right heart. Have the right attitude in it. And mind your protests. Mind the places where you want to grumble. Verse 9, it says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Now remember, this was the poor of the church being oppressed by the very rich within their church. But I want to encourage you, this warning goes beyond what is spoken publicly. He uses a word here for complain that is stenazo. It means to groan within oneself or to sigh. How many of you have ever had difficult circumstances and they're plaguing you? And, I, and you, you come into a gathering like this, you come into a place like this, and you look around and you go, no one's suffering the way that I am. Maybe you don't say that out loud. You're more holy than that. You hold that within. You choke that down so no one else knows it. So... In a righteous act, you choke down your own suffering, but you go, you know what? I'm suffering, and it seems to be more than anyone else in here. And maybe you kind of look around, you glance across the aisle, and you go, I definitely, I'm definitely suffering more than that, dude. And I don't know why God continues to bless her. I know what she's like when she's out here, but she doesn't seem to be suffering the way I'm suffering. Anyone ever had that feeling, that thought? Anyone know someone who does? And here's the thing. He goes, even if you feel that way, but yet you don't voice it, don't consider that righteous. Mark 2 tells us that God can see your thought from afar. So it doesn't matter what it's spoken. It's in there. He says, and don't allow that thought because they're in a church where they're looking across the aisle and the very oppressors on the other side getting ahead on their backs. He goes, don't allow that to divide you. You're still brothers and sisters. You need to give that anxiety to me. Cast it on me. Give it to me because I love you. Don't allow it to do what it's going to do in you because it just got planted. And that's going to become a bitter root of envy. And that's going to draw divisiveness, division between you and whoever it is you just judge. He goes, don't do that. Don't judge. You have no idea what they are going through. Yeah, it may seem that you suffer more, but don't think And allow envy or bitterness to drive a wedge between another brother or sister. Just give it to me and worship in unity. I encourage you to go read Mark 2 this week. And see, see the Lord open the minds of all those publicly just by peering into the heart and mind of those who were judging in that moment. The Pharisee. Read Matthew 7. Look at the practical and biblical example this week of how the Lord sees judgment. And he says, do not judge lest you be judged with the same weight, same measure. James is trying to remind them, look, don't grumble against one another. Don't start talking in your heart, even if you don't vocalize it. Don't say it out loud. Don't allow bitterness to grow so resentful that it decimates the relationships in your life. 
And how many of you know or have experienced a decimation of relationship? How many of you know bitterness played a part? Resentment, a lack of truth, dishonesty. He says, don't let that happen. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness. So you don't have to assume. He's going to take care of it and will expose the motives of the heart. So if you look across the aisle and you go, yeah, but that dude got a way easier than me. Don't allow that your self to go there because God will expose if that's true. But here's what he'll also expose. He'll expose that was in your heart and mind. He's going to expose the bitterness and the envy and the division and the wall you built up against your own brother. And guess who's responsible for that? Specifically, when he's warning them right here. So let the Lord be the judge. He's the only one who's righteous. He says, I need you to persevere in your practices. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Here he's talking specifically to those who have a Hebraic background in education. Those who had been through Beit Sefer, which would have been the first um, schooling of three, and all Jewish boys and girls went through it. Like those who went through this would graduate by the time they were 10, and this is where they learned the law, and they learned the importance of their history. And one of the things that they would celebrate would be the perseverance of Job and the perseverance of the prophets. The prophets in their day, in the Old Testament, as they would study, would be people that were hated by their own people. What I mean is this. The prophets were the folks who spoke for the Lord. And so when they would walk into any village or town, they brought with them the judgment of God. And so, like, usually they would come into a town, and the townspeople would look at them and go, wait, whoa, 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 what, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? Like, have you come peaceably, if you read in Jonah? Like, why did you come? You coming to bring the fire of heaven on us, or what? They'd look at each other and go, wait, you know, like, who sinned? Why is this dude here? Right? And so they had to suffer wherever they went, people watched them and intended like with a skepticism if they're here it means bad it means punishment was coming and a lot of times it did because the, the people were continual and faithful and here's what they would celebrate about the the prophet through it all even though their own people hated them nine times out of ten they would speak to them this way they didn't want to hear what they had to say because they wanted to continue in their own flesh God would lovingly send the prophet to remind them that they're living in their sin. They're living in flesh. They're living apart from him. They're not living as they were designed to worship him. They're worshiping themselves. And so he would send a reminder, always opportunity to repent of that before that, that coming consequence, that coming punishment would come. So he would warn them. This is what the Lord says. This is what he sees. And the people would just like grumble against the prophet. And they would endure that. It's part of a history they elevated the prophet for their ability to do that. In Job, read verses 40, chapter 42 of Job. You see that Job was so righteous, he was offered up for challenge. And it says in it that by the end, verse 42, or chapter 42, 
that Job was blessed for his ability to endure even when he had done nothing to earn his struggle twofold. Like God was faithful to him in the end because he was faithful to God throughout. And what I want to encourage us to think on is this. I have no idea what your 2020 has looked like. I just have a general sense of where we are as a people and how hard it is. And I don't know if today you're enduring stuff that you would have been enduring whether 2020 happened or not. I don't know if you're enduring the indescribable, the unimaginable, the seemingly insurmountable. I don't know what you are personally facing or what your family's struggling with. But how many of you it's good news that God sees you? And he sees your struggle. And he sees precisely where you are. And he's going to be faithful to the faithful in the end. How many of you it's good news that the results are up to God? No matter who is holding you under or how you're being held under. The results are up to him. And if you will just allow bitterness to be put before him, not allow it to take root in you, and you just stay faithful to him, in the end, the results are up to him. And you will not, you will not be anything other than rewarded in heaven, it says, with life eternal without struggle or pain or suffering. This is all ending. How many of you, that's good news? I've heard it once, I've heard it a million times. When is 2020 just going to be over? James is trying to say to people who really had no control over their circumstance, it's not just a year, this is their life. And he goes, we may have, as Americans, experienced this a year. This is how they entered the world and will go out of the world. And he says, have hope because it's still all ending. He loves you, he sees you, he's coming for you, and you will be rewarded. Worship him through it in spirit and truth. Worship with your all, your mind and your heart. And then he says something really important, and too often people try to take this portion and pull it out of the context of what he's teaching here. And he says, mind your professions. As if it's like a different discussion. It's really quite in sync with what he's been saying. He says, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to do is simply have a yes that says yes and a no that says no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. Here's the thing. Last week, we looked at how James challenged the rich for simply just being worldly, no longer uh, Jewish, no longer Christian, but just being worldly. Here, he looks at the poor and he says this. He says, okay, so man's basically a pathological liar. Okay? I mean, like, in truth, like, man, children lie to their parents. Parents lie to their kids. You know? Uh, Workers lie to their boss. Bosses lie to their... He's like, in general, man's a liar. Hello? If you're like, I find that offensive. (laughs) Okay? Just listen up. In general, man's a liar. And so because we live in a broken and deceptive world, one that's not full of truth, one that doesn't hand on truth, in fact, because it says that light shined in the darkness and the darkness didn't receive it, we don't like the truth. We don't receive the truth of who Jesus is. He embodies truth in life. Because that be our plight in life, our human condition, he says, don't try to appear more holy than you are. So man developed oaths. This isn't a passage about cussing or anything, by the way. All right. When it talks about worshiping with the tongue here, what he's talking about is he's saying, don't develop oaths. Don't lie. Like, 
if you were to say, I swear by God that I did what you asked me to, he goes, if the results are really all up to God, then why would you try to hold God captive with your words? You can't control him, so why would you say that? Hello? Like, don't try to sound more faithful and manipulate the situation than you can actually control. If the results are up to him and you have no control over it, just say, yes, I did it, no, I didn't. And he's talking specifically to the poor here who, who are being robbed by the rich. Could you imagine going to work, not being paid for two days straight, and your family deserves that money that you earned? They, they willingly won't survive if they're not paid. And so the very rich in your church are robbing you, telling you they'll pay you, not do it. And then on the day three, you come to day three, and he's actually going to pay you. Like, hopefully, Junior doesn't die by the time you get home because he's been counting on food. But on day three, you're going to get paid. Can you imagine the temptation that you might have to go, okay, yes, I did all my day's work, but I also did this too. So maybe I can get back a little bit what you've already stolen from me. Maybe I can get a little more than this day wage so that I can actually feed my family with what they deserve to be fed because they've been starving for two days. And by the way, I swear by God, I did what I just said. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's what's going on in this passage. And he's going, don't do that. Just simply be honorable, be of integrity, and no matter how someone may abuse you, do not turn and become an abuser. So do not lie. Mind your profession. He says, I need you to consider, do you actually trust that God sees you and in the end will honor you? Do you believe, like truly, that he'll be faithful to you? Then you don't need to make steps like this whether in action or in tongue. Will God keep his end of the bargain? Scripture reveals that God is not a liar. He's never broken a promise and he will be with us in the end. So if that is true, are we striving to be people of integrity, persevering as worship even through that which we can't explain and not complain against our oppressor or the oppression that we're facing? So James asks us to consider why work counter to a life of righteousness when our motive was pure with an unrighteous tongue? Like something that God can go, nope, right there, that's not what you need to do. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Today, I'm going to wrap this up here with a question. God sees the faithful and he's never stopped fighting for them. Whether you read it in the Old Testament, whether you see it at the cross, whether you see it now in your life or in the, what we've just read through the story of the New Testament, there's been this continual encouragement that God sees you, he's fought for you, and is continuing to fight for you. And he's coming for you and for me, the faithful. So James says, mind what you say and mind what you do. Ultimately, persevere. God sees you and he knows the heart. He knows your thoughts. Every word that you want to say that it hasn't yet been spoken. Don't think that by choking it down, you're being more righteous. Just give that to me. Because God ultimately knows what and who you truly worship. So this morning, church, if, if you truly worship him, and you're not responsible to answer that question for the people seated next to you or with the people, this is just you. If you personally truly worship him, despite any circumstance you face, that should not, if you have a faith in him because he's not a liar, 
and he's never broken a promise and he'll never leave, should not cause you to waver. James says you have every right to hope and to anticipate today the return of the victor, Jesus, and his coming for you and making you ultimately victorious in him. So whether it be through earthly oppression or the opportunity, listen, for perjury, choose to be like him. This morning, choose to worship him. And today, that's our choice. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to think on it. I'm going to ask this question as I pray. As the band is coming back, and they're going to lead us through a time of prayer corporately. Today, we choose either to worship him or to worship ourselves. And for the church this morning, I have to ask, which will it be? The choice can't be made by a neighbor or by another family member. It can only be answered by you and by me. Father, I thank you that we have a personal relationship in Jesus that you have called us into, and that relationship is covenant. It's one where we have an end and you keep up your end of the bargain. A place where we can be faithful as you are faithful to us. And right now, in this moment, as we contemplate that, and we contemplate our own faithfulness, whether it be in action or in word, I pray you'd find a people that have sought to be both. And I pray that right now, in any place where we have not been, bring that to our mind, give us an ability and and a compassion and sincerity, repent of that, and we ask for you to have your way right now with us. In Jesus' name, amen.